particularly lucky because I think the kitchen knew that fried chicken was absolutely on my diet today. I didn't quite get to finish. I had a few slides that had actually may spark some discussion in terms of implications, but I kind of want to get a feel for where you're at. And if you're ready to go right to questions, I'm ready to as well. Otherwise, we can kind of have a look while you're finishing up. You say finish, so you can eat while I. Uh, uh, you can you can eat while I finish. How's that? Okay. So. Um, in looking at taking the students through this process, looking at the crime bill, looking at the crime trends in the country, looking at the what works literature, along the way we came up with a lot of concerns and a lot of points of discussion. So I just wanted to bring some of those here today to kind of just spark some thinking on your part. First discussion point has to do with the impact of ignoring the risk principle. Research has told us over and over and over, if you incarcerate and or over-program low-risk individuals, you increase their likelihood of reoffending. We do have some jurisdictions in our country, Saskatchewan um, is the first one that comes to mind, that does include risk assessment information in their pre-sentence reports. And that's intended for the judge to have an idea of what this person's level of risk or where they fit and what types of programming is needed to reduce that risk. Um, so in cases, let's say you have a first-time offender coming up on a possession of child pornography offense, he's, you know, late 20s, he's never had this um, a brush with the law before, the judge may want to take his low-risk status into consideration in terms of sentencing. In this case, he won't be able to. And that's the case with, um, from what the students determined it would be the case with um, some of the child sexual offenses. And particularly, there's one marijuana offense that says if you have five or more marijuana plants growing in your house you automatically get a six-month sentence. So a lot of low-risk individuals grow marijuana in their basement. They work. So there, there would be some issues there. So those were some of the things we discussed. It's important that we pay attention to the risk principle. The next um, discussion point was the impact of shorter periods of incarceration. So... When I left Saskatchewan, we were in the process of revising um, case plan policy for probation and for um, uh, institutionalized offenders. And the case plan policy stated that an offender case plan had to be on file within the first 30 days of an offender being incarcerated in a provincial jail. What the provincial auditor found was that really wasn't happening it was happening in about 45 days. And so the case plans were getting done, but in terms of policy, it wasn't really realistic. So after a period of discussion, it was decided to change that policy and make it 45 days. If, as there is potential to happen, a lot of these sentences fall under provincial jurisdiction, those case management plans are not going to have any substance in terms of risk reduction. They're really going to be administrative. Are all the files here? Have we done all the risk assessments we need to do? Did we do the suicide risk assessment? 
Here's the form for assigning this offender to a unit. Boom, case management's done. They won't have any longer to do any kind of targeting of criminogenic needs or send those offenders to programs. So there are concerns in terms of what is the quality of case planning going to be for offenders who are in that revolving door. You might have an offender who has six terms of 30-day sentences over a two-year period, and in none of those six terms... Have they ever had a criminogenic need targeted? Have they ever had a program? Yet they've been in and out of the system for two years. So it's really going to cause provincial corrections to rethink how they do their case management, I think, if they're able to do it at all. Many concerns over mentally disordered offenders. My students were uh, talked about this quite a bit. They talked about how it's difficult for Corrections Canada and provincial jails to handle mentally disordered offenders now. Judges will not be able to consider mental illness in their sentencing practices. So for those offenders that they might have given periods in the community with a psych referral, they won't be able to do that now. The offender will automatically go um, be incarcerated. So there was lots of concern there. The other concern is for GLADU considerations. So a GLADU report is part of a pre-sentence report for an Aboriginal offender, and it speaks to the unique circumstances of some Aboriginals in terms of um, uh, violence and substance abuse on the reserves, whether or not they have been involved in residential schools, and some of the other issues that are um, perhaps unique to Aboriginal offenders. And the judge is supposed to take this into consideration with respect to sentencing, and that will not be the case with mandatory minimums. So students were, um, especially my, I have two Aboriginal students in this class, um, and, and, and one student from Mexico, and it was surprisingly that student that brought this up and said, hey, this is concerning to me. So th that was a very valid point, I think, on their part. <clears throat> The impact on provincial jails, this is my prediction and my prediction only. Most, the vast majority of these mandatory minimums are under two years. The vast majority. And so that is going to fall under the jurisdiction of provincial jails. And I really worry about the revolving door that this has the potential for. Offenders who may have been given probation will not have probation now. They'll be sent to a provincial jail. So that's um, certainly a concern. Uh, increased budgets will certainly be a concern for provincial jails. Um, increased costs for police budgets um, in terms of... Um, uh, um, housing offenders and, and that kind of thing in their um, increased costs for courts, most definitely. We will see Crown prosecutors. Or I guess the other thing that the students brought up is you'll see a, you'll see a lot more plea bargaining going on um, and charges being reduced um, away from the mandatory minimum convictions. And so that's one of the other things they talked about. And finally, it's been fairly vague... Um, from our um, finance minister and our public safety minister as to where this money is going to come. Is there going to be help for the provincial governments in terms of taking up the cost? One of the issues that we've just heard this morning is that Kingston Penitentiary is to be closed over the next two years and not to be replaced. Where are those offenders going to go? What does that mean? <sighs> 30 minutes just really doesn't do this issue justice. There's so much. 
So that's kind of what I had to present today, some of the things that my students found, and it was a joy to take them through at this term, absolutely. Hi, my name is uh, Knut Peterson. Hi, Knut. Hi. <laughs> Sheila, do you think uh, this is part of a larger plan to privatize prisons in Canada? This was an issue that my students brought up. It was something that we discussed and we talked about. You know, I'm, I'm thinking even a little bit more. I'm picturing some of them today saying, see, I told you so. Now they're closing Kingston Penitentiary, and they're saying we're not going to build another one. So it is, um, it is something that some people are discussing. Personally, I don't know. I just don't know if that is um, part of the plan. We did have a privatized prison project in Ontario a few years ago. Ian, what was the name of that institution? Was it Mill Haven? In Ontario, and it, it, it was a miserable failure. Um, it just was not well run, um, and so um, it, it was the Ontario pre Ontario Provincial um, Corrections that did that. And it, so I don't know. I don't know. I guess Knut, that's my answer. I don't know, but my students think, yeah. Hi, my name is Bob Adams, and a question I have is, how do you? Okay. Yeah, my name is Bob Adams. I'm surprised that you're the first one to ever said that could never hear me, but... I could hear you. <laughs> How do you go about educating, you know, I guess the populace? Because the group of people I hang around in that, you know, we don't go for a bunch of these numbers and stuff like that. So maybe you got to educate us to a point, too, because, you know, I learned a lot here today myself, but I'm from the old school. You do anything to me, it's going to be tit for tat. You know what I mean? And, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of us out there in that. And mm -hmm. I think you got to educate us to a point, too. You know, I just spent the last four years of my life training frontline correctional workers in evidence-based corrections. Um, and it's a very difficult task. One of the phrases that, that kept coming to mind, and I'm sure this is not your perspective, but one of the things that kept coming to mind for me is, don't confuse me with the facts. I already know what I know. Exactly. That kind of a perspective. And you don't know what and all it's there. I am certainly um, well versed in it and happy to disseminate to anyone who's interested. And that's the key, anyone who's interested, right? And that's been the issue is that um, not a lot of people are aware of the what works literature base and what's important in reducing reoffending, and that it's Canada's baby. Australia said, hey, what are they doing over there in Canada? And they've adopted a lot of our principles. New Zealand said, hey, what are you doing over there? They're adopting risk-need responsivity. It really, a, a lot of people don't know that. Thanks, Bob. Well, then... <laughs> I'm Christina Cuthbertson. Um, there was a lot of talk at our table about the risk assessment mm -hmm. and that counterintuitive uh, notion that you put forward in focusing on low-risk offenders and their their um, um, likelihood of reoffending actually increases. So we were wondering what the indicators are for high and low-risk. Mm -hmm. 
there are a series of four, they called them the big four um, risk factors. Um, the first is criminal history. So the best predictor of future behavior, of course, is past behavior, right? Um, unless there's been an intervention. There's antisocial or pro-criminal attitudes. So like I said earlier, if I'm of the mind that it's okay to steal your car because you've got insurance and you'll get a better one, that's the kind of thinking. I don't have to work because I can make more money selling drugs than you can make doing your silly college job and look how hard you work. It's that kind of thinking. So antisocial attitudes, um, antisocial associates. I tell my kids all the time, choose your friends wisely. We associate ourselves with people who are like-minded. So that's another one of the risk, um, risk factors. There's that personality profile where offenders who are just impulsive, they don't think before they act. They have a really high level or need for stimulation. They're thrill seekers. That's another um, very closely associated risk factor with crime. So those are the big four. And then, of course, there's substance abuse. There's family marital associations. Do my family hold me accountable for my behavior? And do I care? Or does my family pat me on the back if I steal a car because it's kind of funny and we've all done that and we've all been to jail and so good for John. So it's those family marital. Um, another one that particularly with youth offenders, it's called leisure recreation pursuits. Do I buy into pro-social leisure and recreation um activities. Am I on a basketball team? Do I play hockey? Most offenders, especially youth offenders, will look at you and say, you want me to what? You want me to play basketball? Only nerds play basketball, right? That kind of talks. So there are about eight of these that have been built into risk assessment tools. And when they've used these to follow offenders, do a prediction and follow them, they've been pretty accurate. So um, I know here in provincial um, corrections, community corrections, they are using what's called the SPIN, and it is a, a, a accumulation of a number of those factors. Does that answer your question, Kristen? Thank you. Uh, I'm Trevor Page. Hi, Trevor. Um, I wonder if you have any cost estimates on the cost of a team of counsellors mm-hmm taking an offender mm-hmm. and trying to change their behavior mm-hmm. as opposed to just locking a person up. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not in favor of locking mm-hmm. people up and leaving them in a cage. But there are cost implications. And with the federal government downloading responsibility to the mm-hmm. provinces, mm-hmm. I'm wondering if you can give us some figures. I can't. I know that there have been cost-benefit um, studies done in terms of lowering recidivism and the benefit of that. I also know that um, I haven't seen any studies that have actually done that, so I really can't speak to that. What I do know is in the um, most effective case management model, those frontline correction workers, those jail guards or formerly jail guards, those probation officers, they become the rehabilitative person. They're trained how to do cognitive restructuring. They're trained how to do that cognitive behavioral treatment. They're trained in relapse prevention. And so they're trained to actually do that upfront piece. Um, And it's very painful to try to train them to do that in some cases, but that seems to be the most cost-effective model. 
rather than having a team of psychologists, which it doesn't necessarily have to be. I taught my students how to do relapse prevention this year, and they became quite good at it. So um, there are skills that you can teach your frontline people that are very, very effective. There's a number of core correctional practice skills. Thanks, Trevor. My name is Blaine Thacker, and I had the privilege of serving in Parliament for 15 years. Nice to nine meet you. With Mr. Clark, and then five years with Mr. Trudeau, and then nine wow. years in government. What a Mr. time Trudeau. to be in Parliament with so, Pierre Trudeau. And a lot of these bills were right there, and I happened to chair the Justice Committee because I was a, a lawyer. Right. Mm -hmm. Now you're scaring me. The point in terms <laughs> of the omnibus bill, you all know that when the government presents a bill to Parliament, there's a first reading, there's a second reading, there's a committee stage, yes. then third reading. It goes to the Senate then for that whole procedure. Yes. So the governments submit their bills and the opposition invariably stonewall, <laughs> filibuster, anything they can to mm -hmm. stop it. Sure. The government get, becomes frustrated, puts in an omnibus bill, and deals with it all. So you only have to go through that parliamentary procedure once. Mm -hmm. That's the solution, and I... As I say, I've mm -hmm. had it on both sides. In, mm -hmm. in government, under Mulroney, we had many omnibus bills, also with Mr. Trudeau, mm -hmm. uh, because the parliamentary procedure was such that it permitted delays and wasted a lot of parliamentary time. Sure. So that's my comment. Uh, I have a question about uh, your chart on the victims' reporting, and I think you said 84 per 1,000? Is that it? I'll go back to it, Brian, and we can have a look at it. But I think um, this one. Was it this one? Self-reported victimization? Yes, perhaps it was. But the, the data was 100 victims per 1,000. Right, and so that's that orange line for the violent victimization. Is that the one? It's, about, it's a little better than 100. So about 110 per 1,000. Yeah. So and that's... In terms of the final number, mm -hmm. Lethbridge has 84,000 people. Mm -hmm. Are you saying there's 84 times 100, which is, what, 8,000 victims in this city? Yep. Wow. Mm -hmm. That really mm -hmm. did shock mm -hmm. me. Last mm -hmm. point, uh, do you agree that the monies, if, it were, if they were spent on grade 2 students, that that would uh, solve it? There's all sorts of research showing that uh, mm -hmm. you can intercept that grade There two. is. There is. You know, I had that question a lot. Um, I, I interpret that in the way that I, I would have the question in the field when I was training correctional workers. Okay, so we work with this offender and we do all of these things that you're saying we need to do, and then we send them back to the very same community where all of these social ills are. My response to that and, and to you is that I'm a corrections expert. I deal with my expertise. Education needs to deal with theirs. Social services needs to deal with theirs. It needs to be a coordinated effort. If I worry about where I'm sending my offender back to, I am kind of saying, well, it's futile. I'll throw up my hands, and I'm just going to warehouse them. And that's a concern to me. So, yes, I do think our education system has issues. That's the Minister of Education's area. That's where they need to look to their evidence-based literature and say, hey, we need to do some changes. That's, that's my opinion anyway. Does that answer your question? Some? Okay.
Hi, my name is Frances Schultz. Hi, Frances. Um, and, and what Blaine just mentioned, the importance of dealing with issues, helping students get mm-hmm. self-esteem, learn to cope in society, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the younger, the better mm-hmm. chance of a positive future. Mm-hmm. But what I wanted to ask was, when you're talking about risk assessment, mm-hmm. do you also include information about their school history? Yes. Absolutely. In the, um, there's a, a very popular young offender risk assessment tool called the um, Youth Level of Service Inventory, and a good section of the information gathering has to do with their school performance record. Are there suspensions? What are the suspensions for? Um, what are their teachers saying? They're actually collateral interviews with the school. That is, if the offender has been in school, which in some of our northern communities is not always the case. So yes, it is. Hi, I'm Malcolm Greenshields. I, I must apologize. I wasn't able to come for your talk. But I Hi, Malcolm. Question. Hi. Um, and uh, Mr. Thacker was quite right. The, uh, the cost of educating someone is so much cheaper than the cost of incarcerating someone that that um, retention in schools is, mm-hmm. is really valuable it is. for preventing. Yes, offenses. prevention. Mm-hmm. And uh, I know in special education particularly, where students may have a, a mental handicap, for example, mm-hmm. um, a lot of those are direct to jail. Yes, and FASD. There's a large mentally huge. handicapped population in jails. Yes. And uh, also a mentally ill population, as you were mentioning. Yes. I don't know if you got into that today. I did a little. Yeah. We, t- we touched upon it. It's one of the... 35%, some 40%, mm-hmm. something mm-hmm. Like that, uh, mm-hmm. mentally ill in some mm-hmm. jails. Um, <clears throat> the other thing I was going to ask um, was regarding the origins of Bill C-10, and I'm not very clear on that. Mm-hmm. I mean, the... The, uh, because there seemed to be a great admiration for the way things were done in the United States. But, I mean, they started this war on drugs in the 1970s, and when they had a jail population per capita about the same as everybody else, now they've got over 2 million people in jail, 7 million in the system in general, um, and they're all backing away from these mandatory minima and all of these uh, mm-hmm. harsh uh, drug laws, for example, mm-hmm. because most of the people incarcerated under that war on drugs were nonviolent. Yep. And uh, most of our people who are incarcerated are nonviolent. Mm-hmm. And so I think uh, we really have to look at something something better than this. Mm-hmm. I mean, an omnibus bill is great because you can get a lot done, but you can also sneak a lot through. And uh, mm-hmm. I think that's the problem with, with yes. C-10. I'm just, just wondering, though, if you know, what, where did it originate? Who's, in whose mind or whose minds did this whole The omnibus bill? Yeah. I really, I don't know. I mean, it originally showed up in the conservative election platform, right. and my students and I went and had a looked at look at that, and that's the first time that we had seen it was in that platform. Now, I was reading um, a little while ago about I I um, framed these bills as previously bills that had previously been introduced into legislation. The article that I had read said that they were previously failed bills. And so when Prime Minister Harper prorogued government, these bills were sitting there and hadn't been um, addressed. And so we're 
in effect, failed bills. But you don't know who the genius behind the... Uh, uh, no. Again, it's very concerning to me because I did talk a little bit about the five big Canadian researchers, Dr. Jandro, Dr. Bonta, Dr. Andrews, and how a lot of that research, some of my risk prediction research funded by Public Safety Canada. So how can you, in light of that, not incorporate those types of principles into the bill? I think we need to get smarter on crime rather than getting tough. Punishing is easier, but... Fixing for, a criminogenic environment. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, but for these individuals that we're targeting, punishment is good. You take your 16-year-old gangbanger with his pants down around his knees so you can see his underwear, and you tell him he's going to jail, what's he going to say? Bring it on. I like that idea. It makes me tougher. Notch one up on my belt. Real punishment for him is to say, you have to pull up your pants and wear a belt, right? So that's part of the issue. Punishment, as we know it, things that would deter me from committing crimes are not necessarily punishment for No, in some subcultures, they're a, band, they're a mark of honor, really. Absolutely. And that's why Absolutely. That's the origin of wearing your pants like that, actually, is that jail pants were too big. Mm-hmm. for most prisoners. Yeah. So, so they, they would fall down. So now they wear these jeans that are huge. This is, and so punishment is very specific. What might be punishing for you might not be for me. It might actually be quite good. So I think these general deterrence is not something that works and has been shown over and over again, our neighbors to the south. Thank you, Murray. Oh. Is it Murray Greenshields? Malcolm, sorry. <laughs> uh, Gerald Wobick, I enjoyed your talk very much. Gerald, thank you. But I have a question. Oh. I understand First Nations people are very overrepresented in our jail system. Absolutely. And you're from Saskatchewan. I understand yes. the Saskatchewan healing circle, not be quite the right word to use, but there is a place there where the Indians go. Healing Lodge, yes. Yeah, and, and it's, I don't know how cost effective it is, but apparently it has been very good on reducing recidivism. Could you enlarge on that a little bit, please? You know, I don't have the numbers on that. I know there's a new initiative in Saskatchewan federally. There's been some federal dollars to um, expand and improve on the healing lodge environments. Um, Some of the Aboriginal principles are very difficult to consolidate with the what works literature, and so that's been an issue to try to negotiate. Um, But some of them in terms of um, a sweat. A sweat is meant to um, help you to clear your mind and think um, in a positive way, so to cleanse you of all of the negative thinking and that kind of thing, which is in some ways similar to cognitive restructuring, where you take your thinking errors or your um, dysfunctional thinking and you try to replace it with more functional thinking. So there are some... Um, consistencies that would suggest that it would be effective, but I haven't seen those numbers, so I'm just not sure um, how effective it is at reducing recidivism. But certainly culture is an important piece. Okay, so Thanks, Sue. Thank you. We would have time for one more question if there is uh, one more question out there. And here comes Van. Thank you, Van. My name is Van Christou. Uh, thank you for your presentation. Um, in talking about the risk uh, factors, mm-hmm. uh, you didn't mention the political one. Ah, there's a political risk factor? Um, NDP. We've been committed since <laughs> the 70s to, to this, this anti-drug war Yes. Uh, politically. 
And uh, don't you think that that's doing a great deal of harm uh, in our, with our young people in mistrusting the, the motives of, of, of our society in incarcerating people for things that, that, uh, that they feel very strongly uh, are, are not uh, fair. Are you speaking to the um, legalized marijuana kind of movement? Or? Yes, or to drugs generally. Uh, the, the fact that, uh, that uh, our prime minister just yesterday uh, not only uh, publicly but internationally mm-hmm. announced that he's supporting the drug war. He did, but, you know, there was a nuance in how he said that. He said something like um, the war on drugs that is, as it is now is not working. So kind of suggested to me when I heard him talking about that that there's something that we don't know about coming down the pipe. Um, and so your question was around how do you think our youth are interpreting that? Well, the fact that that, that is a political statement. It sure is. And uh, that, that our youth mistrust it. Don't you think? Um, well, I think they just um, entirely mistrust um, in terms of, um, I, you know, there's a whole generation growing up, my generation, um, not myself personally, but my generation that just don't get the whole deal over marijuana. I remember watching a video. How many of you saw Reefer Madness when you were teenagers? Right? And that whole, you know, um, uh, it's a video from the 50s, was it? That, that really looked at how our teenagers are going to go crazy because they're going to smoke marijuana. And so my generation has kind of grown up with, eh, you know, that's not been the case. And so, you know, we have friends who regularly smoke it. And so I, 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 in terms of the marijuana movement, I can kind of see both sides and I can see how some youth would feel really targeted in that. There are some states in the U.S. where if you're caught with um, three joints in your pocket, it's an automatic 15-year sentence. Really? Three joints. And so, you know, some of my cohort look at that and say that's extensive. So I can kind of see how youth might be. Um, The change in the type of drugs these days, though, is very scary. You could do a video similar to Reefer Madness um, in relation to crack cocaine right now, and it would be very realistic. So in that case, I'm not sure how youth react to that, but I think it's the what they consider to be the milder drugs that they feel like they're being persecuted for. Is that helpful? Yes. 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 And we're able to regulate it and control it and and use some of the revenues from it to provide treatment where needed. So I, I think that's the issue with marijuana. Would I ever want to see cocaine or crack cocaine real um, legalized? I don't I don't think we're there yet. I hope. I think, you know, everything is a pushing of the boundaries. What was not okay in the 50s is now, meh, who cares? Where are we going to be in another 50 years? Are we going to be saying, well, crack cocaine's okay? I don't know. It's always a pushing of the boundaries. It's worrisome. What's that? <laughs> they do, well, they do for marijuana in, in Holland and prostitution, yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much, Sheila. It was a wonderful debate. Thank you.